Welcome to our latest podcast, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Today, we bring you the latest episode of World of the Play, which is our partnership with Everyman Theater. This performance conversation is unraveling the threads of labor and love, then and now, which was inspired by the latest production at Everyman of the play Intimate Apparel by the McCarthy genius and Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage. Joining our panel for this discussion is fashion designer Stephen Wise, artist and cultural organizer Valeska Papula, and former sex worker and member of the Sex Workers Outreach Project, Gigi Goba. Enjoy the conversation, and let us know what you think. Write to me, Mark, with a C, at steinershow.org. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How are you? My name is Brian Francoise. I'm the director of community engagement here at Everyman Theater. And I want to welcome you today to our signature panel discussion series called World of the Play. I just want to say a couple words about how we arrived here with this particular World of the Play. Um, in community engagement, we have a program called Circle of Engagers, where we invite artists, educators, entrepreneurs, advocates, even activists, to look at the play and co-create and co-curate programming. So with no further ado, I want to um, introduce to you to our, our host and moderator. Been doing this for about four years now, Mark. And these conversations are rich, and you are part of it. And uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, with the Center of Emerging Media, Mark Steiner. Hi. Good to have you all here. This has been four years, and uh, let me introduce the panel. Sitting next to me is Gigi Goma. Gigi is uh, part of the Sex Workers Outreach Project, SWAP. She joined, you joined up in 2016, correct? Um, and used her lived experience as a black hair sex, sex worker um, and to, to, to work in her community activism. She's now majoring in psychology and women and gender studies at Towson. Uh, and we go on to graduate school and uh, joins us today. Gigi, good to have you. <laughs> Stefan Wise is with us, and uh, Stefan Wise is uh, one of Baltimore's leading fashion designers and entrepreneurs and began doing this, really selling socks at 14? A dollar a pair. A, do a dollar a pair. <laughs> a city, when you went to city. <laughs> He's another city. How many people here went to city? All right, let's have some go city, all right. Uh, and next to him is Valeska Papula, who's been here before. She is a, uh, works in the fiber department at MICA, and uh, is a, when we, she's an artist with the Black Cherry Puppet Theater, which is a phenomenal theater, um, and also has created this performance called The Garment Worker's Tale, looking at the accounts of women in the garments industry in, in our community here in Baltimore. Um, which is where part of my family started out well over a hundred and some years ago in this city. So I know that world well. Um, so let's begin. This is a very complex piece. Lynn Nottage is not known for simplicity. Um, and she, she weaves a complex tale. So let, you know, and this, I've been wrestling with this play ever since I read it and watching this piece. I'm, everybody here has seen it. So... There's so many layers, as we talked about. I mean, there's the layer of, that runs through the whole, the thread, pun intended, that ties all this together, is sexuality and the pieces that fit through that sexuality, 
the attractions, the forbidden ones, whether it's women and women, whether it's an old Jewish tailor, not old Jewish tailor, a Jewish tailor and a black woman um, that could never be consummated. The love of this mystery man uh, in building the Panama Canal and the reality it brings home. The love between Esther and the woman who runs the boarding house. All of this built around clothing. So I'm curious what you think is literally under there. Since we're talking about the garments and many undergarments, really, really? So this, this kind of weird path. Why don't you start, Fleska? So um, maybe I'll start by saying that um, I teach a class right now at MICA, which we've run for about 10 years in the fiber department, called Fashioning Culture, Readdressing Clothing. And it's a very interesting class to teach, in part because we're embedded in a fiber arts program, so our students are art students. Um, but we talk a lot about the role that clothing plays and textiles play in our everyday lives, and you all know that um, from your own lives. Um, we talk in that class, and I think it relates a lot to this play, how clothing is one of the most um, powerful visual communicators that we have. It's the way that we express who we are. It's a way for us to um, feel powerful or have a sense of power. It's also a way that in history, um, people have been marginalized through the use of clothing and textiles. Um, and so I think that's one of the really powerful themes for me watching this. You know, there were, um, I watched it with my graduate assistant who is in the, in the room today, and we were talking a lot about how um, fascinating it is to think about how Lynn Nottage used clothing um, in many moments in the play to communicate really powerful things. So it's the corset, the role the corset plays, um, as both a, an instrument of oppression, some might say, for women for many centuries, um, but also as a, a, a garment that makes people feel powerful and sexual. And we see that on Mrs. Van Buren, how she's allured by this, this corset that she gets from Esther. And then also, I think, um, the moment where Mr. Mark, the Jewish tailor, talks about when Esther asks him why he's still wearing this black suit, and he says, this is the black suit of my father. This is me connecting to my ancestors and to my God. And then there's another moment when, when that very shocking moment, when, when I watched the play on opening night, everybody gasped, when Mame pulls out the smoking jacket that you know Esther made very lovingly for her husband, George. Um, and so I think there are so many moments where Lynn Nottage really understands the role that we can connect to that role that clothing plays in our lives. So I was really fascinated by that, and I'm really excited that my students are going to come and see it and see that kind of story unfold on stage for them. You want to pick up, Stephen? Stephen, since this is your world. Great put. Greatly put. I don't know how to come behind that. You, you captured the whole play and all of the garment interactions in like five minutes, so thank you for that. I don't know what to say. <laughs> um, so what, what to me as a designer, uh, it was an incredible play, I guess, seeing um, a seamstress and her story being told via clothing and how at the very end, to go back to, I guess, the end of the story, maybe backtrack a little bit, how when she had lost everything, had to start from scratch and they given all her money to George and the lights dimmed and the spotlights on her and the sewing machine starts all over again. And it's kind of like how, the, how life is, but it was kind of translated via clothing where um, when all else fails, go back to what you know. 
Um, and that was impressive to me because I feel like even here, kind of bringing it to Baltimore locally now, that Baltimore was known for such, such a rich history in garment making and, and a, a garment making town and second in the world to only New York and then sometimes Trump New York in some areas. Um, and now we're going back to this holistic way of keeping it local and by Baltimore and made in Baltimore. So it's kind of like it's, it's perfect timing for the play to be shown, I think, here in Baltimore for what's happening now. I know what we do when hearing my customers say, I don't want to buy anything that's not made in Baltimore. So it's an ode to Baltimore. And that was a really a striking nerve to me. Um, and I think also, too, it's interesting how some garments were even seen to be as kind of like taboo back then. Like, it's just under, it's just undergarment. It's not wearing outside. But how we have this sex worker where she proudly adorns herself in this attire. But then the other end, it's when uh, Esther kind of almost hides, in her, hides from her husband wearing the same attire. So one person, they proudly wear it. The other person to start the start the play is like I can't show myself in it, so it's really it's a whole lot of underlying tones in the whole play. So it was, it was just a remarkable play, but it's just so many levels and layers as you said to the play, though. Yeah. Gigi, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I guess like and also speaking to um, women's work and labor, the fact that Esther um, did make garments. I think a lot of um, like this is right before the Great Migration and like 1915, and a lot of black women, immigrant women, poor women um, were the majority of the domesticated work, you know, making, making clothing, cleaning the home, um, running, running a boarding house. So I thought, you know, I was thinking about race and class in regards to Esther's occupation and as well as Mammy's occupation. I guess just speaking back to what you were referring to, Stephen, is um, Esther not feeling comfortable wearing the clothes that she so intimately designs and creates and imbues with um, her energy and how Mame um, freely expresses her sexuality, I think very much speaks to how women were socialized back then. And um, to, 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 I'm just kind of thinking about Mame and how her notions of sexuality and intimacy and sex um, allowed her to be free of those socializations that very much placed women um, in this puritanical um, like, sure. like shell and, and on this pedestal. And, but of course, we can also talk about the hypersexualization of black women. And there's, yeah, like you were saying, Mark, there's so many complex things going on there. Go ahead, Velasco. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, that makes me think of is um, a theme that comes up in the play, of course, is about race and class and sexuality, but um, when I was doing some research for the class I'm teaching, I came across some writings by someone who was referencing Michel Foucault, uh, History of Sexuality, and uh, the author I was reading who was quoting Michel Foucault was saying that the Victorian woman, the white Victorian woman, um, as being conceived of um, as being this pure, uh, healthy, uh, non-sexual, woman was also, in his mind, a tool of imperialism and racism, of white supremacy. And that was very interesting for me to read because he was saying that that was always sort of like the, um, the white Victorian woman, the European or the American woman, was used as a symbol for kind of uh, cultured society. And that women were sort of trapped in that image, to, be, to want to desire, to want to become that, but that it was also used as a way to sort of um, other the territories that were being conquered, 
and the people that were being conquered there. And I thought that was a very interesting interpretation. I was very aware of how Victorian women were performing their, their, their female identity, their femininity, but I never thought about how Victorian women might actually be performing their white identity as well at the same time. So that's what's interesting about this play for me as well, because it takes place precisely when the Panama Canal is being, the Panama Canal is being built, right? American expansion um, in another country. So that parallel for me was really fascinating. Go ahead, Stefan. Um, to me also, too, was interesting is that how we make everything so racial, but forever there has been this dialogue of, of black and white. And it, in, some, in so many cases, the white wealthy um, feel closer to the black counterparts or those that are working with them than their own spouses or loved ones. And so with uh, Ms. Ms. Van Buren, she felt a certain closeness um, even beyond the intimacy, you were a friend. And was offended when Essa only saw herself as like almost like a slave, so to speak. I'm just, I just work for you. I'm not your equal. But we're making a ratio, but she didn't really see color. Initially, I saw my friend. I can talk, I can share with you. And we often go back to this racial thing, but it's showing that we're all people. We all believe the same, we all love the same, we all want the same, uh, we all feel the same in, in, in so many different dynamics. May I respond to that? Mm -hmm. Please. Um, so I, th I think that's a really good, interesting point. I, I would argue, not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I would argue that Mrs. Van Buren is, does not have to be aware of her racial identity as a powerful white woman, right. and that Esther is very aware of her racial identity, right. and that Mrs. Van Buren is able to imagine herself to be in an intimate relationship with Esther, whether that's a sensual one, because that mysterious kiss that we see in the play, or whether it's just one of intimacy and friendship, that Mrs. Van Buren is allowed to imagine herself in being in a friendship with Esther, and that Esther's very aware of the social boundaries that exist, and that's why she says, you know, we are not friends. I have not walked through your front door. Mm -hmm. You have not invited me to come through your front door, so how can you say that you love me? And I think that's like a very powerful moment, because I think it speaks to the fact that while we would love to, you know, even back then, while there were, might have been moments of uh, deep friendship that might have started to develop, that the social boundaries that existed were very powerful mm -hmm. and were experienced more powerfully for those that were marginalized. In this instance, Esther, as a working class single woman yeah. who was performing labor for Mrs. Van Buren. And Mrs. Van Buren was able to step out of that, those relationships, because of her privilege. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I mean, very, unless you want to take Look, no, geez, you, and I'll jump in after you. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. So I, I was also going to kind of piggyback off of that and speak to, you know, where this, 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 this need for intimacy came from in Miss Van Buren. Um, you know, I, it kind of reminded me of, like, Emma Goldman's take on, on marriage and how married women back in, in, in that day and... Uh, if, especially if you're marrying contractually for money, you know it is 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 it a type? It's a type of sex work, you know. But um, married women do not have the the luxury and the agency that prostituted women have, and so that I guess that dialect was was very interesting. And uh, having mm -hmm. Esther come with these intimate garments and sharing these intimate moments with Mrs. Van Buren, and Miss Van Buren thinking that it's something more because of the, this, this overwhelming need to, to, to have physical, intimate contact with someone because her husband is off 
you know, doing business and not really seeing it as a, as a coupling of intimacy or, or romance. It was very contractual and businesslike. I mean, the, the, the part of the, the, the play for me was um, boundaries. Right, and the the boundaries we all have in this, and the and the bound and how clothing fits into these boundaries, mm-hmm. whether um, our husband's boundary in terms of the clothes he came in as a worker, and then the suit was made for him, or whether it's the bound uh, what was released or bound in by the corset as lingerie, and how each woman looked at this piece of th- clothing differently in terms of what it did for them. Um, it, you know, that, that was all kind of, and to how the money was hid and what it was hidden in, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. tearing apart the thread to release the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so the, the, these, these were all kind of wrapped up and then all that was also kind of wrapped up in labor. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a different level of labor in this. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think this play, um, Beautifully showed, like the. Oh yes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, emotional labor that is is so undervalued in in our society, um, and how much, how should I say? I'm always formulating my, like the the emotional labor that Meme puts into the relationship with Esther, and that Esther puts into George, and that George is not going to reciprocate because of how different bodies are socialized in our society. Uh, women's, um, socially speaking, women's work is, is, is usually um, in the emotional sphere and how that's, you know, for lack of better words, just not really seen um, as, as, a, as, vi- as a viable and, and um, I guess, source of labor that's seen as, you know, valid. Um, so I, it was very interesting that emotional labor was brought up in this piece for me. Yeah, I mean, I think also in all this is that none of the labor in this play was devalued mm-hmm. in terms of its presentation. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes if you look at a sex worker, that's immediately devalued, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. On many levels. Mm-hmm. But in this play, the relationship they had um, was very different. Right. Mm. It was even brought out. Yeah. You know. It's very confident. Like this is what nope. I am. You might. Um, you- yeah. This is who, this is what <laughs> I am. This is who I am, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I take someone's husband, and dot dot dot. And it was just it was okay. It was almost like a, a surprise with it. It was kind of funny. We get like, should I laugh? Should I cry? When seeing it. Um, I wouldn't just, say take take someone's husband. Well. What did you just say? Jesus? Well, what you said, I wouldn't say take I, someone's husband. I wouldn't husband. say take someone's husband, you know, because this is a very consensual thing. And I, I was wondering, you know, at, at that moment when Mame just has, like, no, like, disregard for the, the wife, because first and foremost, it is the man who puts the energy into the thought and then the energy into the action to go and seek those services. You know, so when Esther was talking about how she wanted to do this, that, and the other to the sex worker who was with George, I was just like, oh my gosh, no, it should be towards your husband, not towards the, the sex worker, you know. Um, yeah, everything is, is very consensual there. And it, it might be because, you know, we could, we could speak to how George needs 
um, a certain type of intimacy, but he didn't even want to bring that up with Esther, that there could have been a communication there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that those day and ages, and even even now, you know, uh, why why sex work is, is such a, a viable and thriving industry is because, you know, partners are not communicating not between one another. It's like, these are my sexual needs. And then it's, it was also a coupling that was wrapped up and we were talking earlier in monogamy. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. there's so many. But you know, as far as, if so many common similarities between then and now, I called it like a modern, uh, a, a, a soap opera of 1905. It was just, it was all of the elements that you can imagine on some sitcom or reality TV show, <laughs> this circa, 1905, with the exact same dynamics, in my opinion. And, but the, the dialogue of the, the dialogue of communication between uh, individuals, between Esther and George, when he got that communication. So, so it was pillow talk. And I think that the communication that was lacking then still happens now, where so many spouses don't communicate, uh, not making infidelity wrong in any, or right in any kind of way, but it was a lack of communication 112 years ago. And in 2017, there's still so many couples who don't communicate. And so be it, it's a sexual romance. I, in, in common times, you hear of the work husband and the work wife. You're really cheating. Because we have a work husband, it's like it's, it's, it's a borderline. This person that you come to work with, that you work with every day, that is your person that you, that you hang out with after work, and you guys do dinner, you guys do drinks. And, and so that's a really thin line before it gets to infidelity. And so it's, this, it's, so it's, it's interesting where if him and Mamie didn't have intercourse, it was just dialogue, it's still infidelity because there was no communication between well, uh, uh, George and Esther. Is it infidelity? I mean, the, to, to me what was going on in this play has to do with, let's talk about the, let's talk about the, the title of this play, right? Mm -hmm. Intimacy. Right. Right? So every relationship in this play was intimate. Mm -hmm. And how, we how, do we, how do we define that for ourselves? in terms of what it means in our relationships that we have with anybody that could be intimate. And intimate doesn't necessarily mean sexual, sure. right? Exactly. Well, I think for that reason, though, that's why maybe I, I uh, stopped for a minute. I was thinking um, the one relationship that's at the center of this play is probably the least intimate, which is that between George and Esther. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a moment where she, at the very end of the play, where he's taking the money out of the quilt ravenously taking the money, says we're further apart now than we were on the night of our wedding. And they had just met that very shortly before that. So I think that, um, to just respond to your point, that there is a lot of intimacy, a lot of intimate relationships, how striking that the one that's at the center is the least intimate, at least in my experience of it. You know, thinking about those moments when Esther's at Mr. Mark's shop, or Mr. Mark's shop, and you understand that there are all kinds of reasons why the two of them cannot be together. Mm -hmm. And they're touching the fabric together, you know. They're both like, oh, look at this beautiful woolen, you know, and they're holding the fabric together. And I think, like, what an intimate moment that is because they're in some ways both tr struggling with the social position they've been put in in the time that they live in. Mm -hmm. They're feeling desires that they know cannot be consummated, as you said earlier. And so that tension and then that their friendship that develops over time, their love of, of, of a shared thing, right? Their love of fabric, the fact that they can talk for hours. I can relate to this being in the fiber department. You can talk <laughs> about like the weave structure of that beautiful silk from China, you know? So I think that there's, there is so many displays of that kind of intimacy that are not possible. Um, and to the conversation earlier, that moment that I think is, 
just like there are also moments, if you talked about boundaries, there are moments when those boundaries are crossed. So not only in the friendships that are across social lines, but also when Miss Van Buren kisses Esther, but then also when Mr. Mark takes off that jacket and he puts on the smoking jacket. And I, you know, I think that I would assume, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not an initiate of Orthodox Judaism, so I'm not sure, but I would imagine that that's not allowed. That's, that's a major no-no. Right. That so I think that's that. There, that so I think those that, moments, yeah. like to think about, like I right. think Lenata just so powerful in this play for a writing about what is kind of intimacy and what are connections and what are relationships and how is love shown between people, she so, really complicates So what that. does it say in this particular, in, in this play, that maybe, the, and it's all built around clothing, the two of the most intimate relationships are between Esther and Mr. Mark. Mm -hmm. Mark's Mark. Mark. Mr. Mark. Mark. Um, that must have been a name they gave him when they came off the boat. So, yes, that's <laughs> so, right. With <laughs> um, this most intimate relationship, as well as with um, the woman whose name I'm blocking on, the landlady. Oh, Miss Dickinson. Miss Dickinson, right. Mm -hmm. And Esther. Those, to me, were two of the most intense, intimate relationships that existed in the play. Um, and, but they were all levels of intimacy here. Yeah, I think right? the, the relationship between, yeah, totally, the relationship between Esther and, and Mrs. Dickinson was, was, I feel like Miss Dickinson was, was saw something in Esther that was reminiscent of how, who she felt she was. And, and you could see that, you know, when Miss Dickinson was like, oh, I, I never imagined you would get married. I thought you would stay here forever and be best friends with me and we have dinner all the time. I see, I think that. Which is where it ended up. Yeah, well, yeah, which is what <laughs> happened. Yeah, and uh, with, the, with after George took all her money, which is really unfortunate, we we'll have to talk about. But um, that that intimacy was was there because they they had the shared, uh, I guess, disappointment in in marriage, and it's you know as much as I think the word spinster back then is, was very much frowned upon, especially for a woman, they could share that between themselves. And that that's where that intimacy really bonded as, as, as well as them being black women, you know? But so, so I, I think that, um, I just lost my train of thought, which is very odd for me to do, but I just did it that moment, but go ahead. Well, I guess one thing about Miss Dixon and, and Esther is, um, you know, I think also she, there's a, there are threads of practicality and um, idealism in this play that play out constantly. You know, the kind of the practicality that Miss Dixon is, is trying to counsel Esther in. You might, you know, you might be waiting for a long time with your high standards. You know, Mr. Charles is downstairs and he's had three helpings of your bread pudding. You know, so, you know, she's trying to say like, you, you might be holding out for, for a long time. And, you know, maybe my husband wasn't the best, but look what I have, I have this house, right? So it goes again to those themes of what people are willing to do to acquire a certain kind of stability. Um, but then also the kind of the idealism that maybe George has about coming to America and the kind of life he's going to have here, right? He's in Panama. He's been told by the American foreman probably about that country that awaits him. And then he arrives and he has to deal with all of these challenges, being a black laborer, unable to get work because the Irish labor and their Norwegian labor and all the other laborers are getting hired first. So I feel like that also plays out between Miss Dixon and Esther. I almost see them like a mother and daughter. They play this kind of the found family, right, that many people had to create because of various forces that had, cre had created breakages in their family. And she's trying to, trying to take care of her, her child, right, her charge in a way. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think that that, again, and then um, what I also really like about the way that, sh that Lynn Nottage writes the character of Mame or Mamie is that she doesn't, need, she doesn't need anybody to save her. She's an independent woman making her own choices about her life. And there's a kind of practicality about her too. She says, yeah, maybe I, you know, they have that moment where they're sort of dreaming about who they could have been. She's like, playing the dance hall in Prague, I'm playing my piano in Prague. She says, that's not gonna happen. So this is the life that I have, you know, and I'm making my choices to have this life. So I think that's another element of the play. And that's why I think the staging is very interesting because we have these sort of apparitions, these moments when George suddenly appears and you sort of have the kind of fantasy of who he is down in Panama. So I think that kind of dream reality, the dream and then the reality of life is always constant in the play as well. Then we'll go with the audience here. Um, interesting to me, how you just said, um, uh, Velasca, about the, um, the, the, the pudding that uh, Esther made, oh, bread pudding. Bread pudding. Yeah. And it's interesting how, and, and we've all heard this, everyone here has heard about the, the way to a man is a stomach and cooking form and if you order, always telling the granddaughters and baby cook form, you're gonna get him to cook a good meal and how that didn't work. But Mr. Marx, is Marx right, Brian? Is it Marx? Marx, I thought so. So Mr. Marx could probably could care less about bread pudding. <laughs> Their common thread was fabric. And that's what got them together. And I think it was such an ode to these old stories that were being told and, and, and are talked about sometimes aren't relevant and don't have any relevance in the conversation. And we're still clinging to these old stories with bread pudding will get him. But Brett Cutting didn't get him. But Mr. Marx, it was the common thread of fabric. And that was their romantic uh, kind of like dinner over a great meal that she cooked. It was them sharing this romantic, engaging stare, both holding on to fabric. And that was his bread pudding. <laughs> but the story that we're being still told is bread pudding and cooking for a man will get him. But Mr. Marx would just, just look at the fabric, we the fabric together every night and talk about what can be made out of this fabric, the, the whole creation of something. This is interesting how this... These old stories still hold weight and they're not relevant. Let's go out here. So we need you to come up to the mic or the mic can come to you, whichever is easiest. Okay. You talk about communication and the fact that the initial communications, the letters were really false. Mm -hmm. You know, neither one of them wrote the letters mm -hmm. and they, and what was, you know, transcribed was the fantasy mm -hmm. of somebody else. So the you know that's an interesting thread because you didn't know until the end that George paid ten cents to have somebody else to write the letters, mm -hmm. and I think another interesting piece was the fact that even though her job was to sew, she loved sewing, mm -hmm. and and the fact that she could go to Mr. Marks and discuss fabric, and it actually you know she traveled. She went around the world mm -hmm. as they talked about the threads of the fabric. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an, an interesting mm -hmm. connector as well. One, the, the lack of communication that brought them together, mm -hmm. but it was sort of a consistent thing throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. are we allowed to comment I, on that? Go ahead. Oh yeah, totally, yeah, I agree. Yeah, they're, they're, the, the false communication that was there kind of propelled was was a catalyst for their own desires. So Esther not, you know, Esther would, would say repeatedly in, in, the, in the play, how calmly, uh, I, oh, no one's ever gonna love me. I'm, I'm a calmly woman, I'm 35 now. Who's gonna, who's gonna find me attractive in any, who's gonna find my, my humdrum life attractive? And so this is why she falsifies. And on top of that, you know, if we, with, with a race and class analysis, she didn't know how to read or write 
and she wanted to kind of convey to, to George the kind of hearkening back to idealism, this, this ideal version of herself and what she thought that someone might be able to love. And then for George, I really think his, his motives were entirely monetary, just wanting to snag which, whoever woman who's so needed to be loved to just satiate that desire for them and possibly get monetary backing when he came to the States. Right. I mean, and, and he was also, I mean, there's some representations here. I mean, this was 40 years after the end of slavery in the United States. Mm -hmm. 40 years. Um, think of how close that was mm -hmm. and who George was. Mm -hmm. but, you know, whether he was, whether he was, whether he was born in Jamaica or Mississippi, doesn't make any difference. You know, and, and that, and that, that part of the dynamic, I mean, e each one of these layers could be a book, mm -hmm. right? I mean, George so. being stuck in New York City, no money, can't get work. No sunshine. No sunshine. Yeah. No sunshine. Yeah, the depression. Right? Mm. Um, and what that, and, 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 and what that has, you know, Lynn Ottage in some ways in this is, is wrestling with what happens to a lot of black men mm -hmm in this society, in the West, what people feel they're forced to do to survive mm -hmm. and then destroy themselves mm -hmm. and things around them. That's right. I mean, she is really yes. hitting something very deep, very, very deep in the character of George. Because you can look at George and go, he's a scumbag, he's no good. That's really kind of a very narrow, linear way of thinking about George. So, so can I right? say something really quickly on, on, on that note? I have a cousin who was um, just getting out of rehab um, and had a, a drug problem. And so uh, recently, just, just this past Wednesday, um, Chris Schaefer has a sharp-dressed man um, shop in downtown Baltimore for, for guys who got a prison or have a house or whatever. And he went there and he texted me, hey, cuz, I got a new suit. He was so excited about his new suit. Mm -hmm. And the same way George felt about this new suit. And this is my cousin getting back into society. I've um, been battling for 20-some-odd years. If he was here, he would tell you himself. 20-some-odd years of an addiction and how it took him to oblivion. And now, how something as a secondhand suit, which is such a, a big lift for us. So you bring to the store, I'll alter it for you. He's been altered. And if we just so excited about he, the same way George felt when he put that suit on and he was mm -hmm. just prancing around and he felt like a million bucks because I have some value mm -hmm. because the rest of my life kind of sucks. So at least I have this I look new good. suit. He looked good in the suit, though, you know? <laughs> right, right. So it's just interesting how it's still parallel to now. Yeah, and or how we're told how to understand ourselves in the society we live in. I think that that's the other part of it. I mean, this is, you know, I think about how this is before the internet, this is at a time where there's no television, so I'm thinking about how people understood themselves and their role in society, and it had to be mostly through clothing, right? That's how you were able to communicate who, and you were not allowed to. I mean, it's nowadays we're allowed to wear pants. I mean, women, this is also at a time where there's the dress reform movement, where there are radical women that are throwing off their corsets. That's why Mrs. Van Buren says, are you a suffragette to Esther? And Esther's like, oh no, of course not. Because, because of the conversation they're having about the corset, like the, that's what I thought again about that the suit is so important for George because what, what people have, were being told at that time is that one of the ways that you can signify that you have reached a certain place in your life is through the clothing that you have on, you know? And so I think that again is like why this is such a powerful play taking place in the time that it's taking place because it's, you know, the visual culture of the time is not what we have now, 
It's the visual culture of 1905, which is mostly on the street seeing what people are wearing on their bodies and what you see in advertisements, maybe. Let's go out here. Hi. Um, I heard you speak about the relationships, the intimacy um, among the relationships, but I want to know if any of you could speak to the symbolism of the quilt as it relates to the um, yes. intimacy with mm -hmm. Esther and George. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the quilt was very powerful. It was as, as the subtext of this entire play and to her character. Again, I don't want to take a, I'll just briefly comment that again, you know, there was a tradition of, as she talks about, you know, taking the remnants of various pieces that you're working on and then using those to make the crazy quilt. And so I was just thinking about, I actually wrote some notes about this because what struck me too was this is, the, this is their wedding bed. Right? This is the cover that is over them or that they are on top of as they're consummating their marriage. And um, so it's sort of sanctified, right? It has covered her body, it has kept her warm. It is the place where she has stored all of her wealth that she has accumulated over all of her years of every $100, what is it, $100 every year since she was a nine that she's been working. So this is probably the most valuable thing, not just because it has all the money in it, but it is a signifier, something that's accompanied her protected her all that time, gone with her from place to place where she's lived. And then that, that, is the, that is the piece that is then penetrated, opened up, ripped apart, and disemboweled of, of all of that money. And I think that for me, that moment at the end is so emotionally intense because it is the quilt, it is the bed cover, it is the thing that has protected her that she has made that is torn open and that has all of the stuff taken out of it, you know? in such a frantic way. So for me, that was the most violent scene in the whole play, is that moment. The quilt also is, I think, it's, it's the depth of what the quilt means in Southern black culture. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. other piece of this. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah very much so. I, I know for me, it was kind of emotional. I thought of my, uh, my, my parents at that moment. And um, it was so violent. It was, mm -hmm. it was emotional. Like, if you didn't feel anything the entire play, until then, that hits you like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And it was like he stripped all of her worldly possessions, everything she'd worked so hard for, like her whole identity was kind of wrapped up into this is my work ethic, this is, this is all I have to make money. And she shredded it open. She didn't like carefully rip it open. She was kind of saying that this is my heart. I'm giving you my all now. I'm trusting you with everything that I have and everything I am. I'm entrusting you with this at that moment. And I guess she was hoping for a response of I'm going to protect your heart. But in turn, she got this ravaging beast, like, yes! It's kind of like the lottery, just like they're ecstatic and running around. So it's kind of like he kind of stripped away where she's hoping that the last straw was, I can entrust you with this. And she was at the end, I can't trust you with it. And what I thought that we had, we don't have now because of your performance. And then after he got everything and tore the quilt apart, he left. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, and so to me, that went back to the end of the play where she's sitting right back down to this quilt all over again, symbolically. Like, okay, well, that man has broken my heart. And it's kind of like how life is now. So, and so many women, they go through these heartbreaks of divorces and my husband left me for the younger one and, and they gotta start from scratch all over again and rebuild that quilt of life from scratch. And that's what I kind of, you know, so I love that point. Thank you for that. So, well, let me go to the audience first. I'll come back to Mame in a second, go ahead. Yeah, uh, you all have such um, a diverse 
experience and professions and you know communities that you walk in in, in Baltimore. And I'm wondering if you could each talk a little bit about uh, what rang true to you or what kind of like grounding this play in Baltimore specifically and, and what kind of popped up for you that were parallel themes or things you want to kind of draw our attention to about your own, your own knowledge in Baltimore. Gigi, why don't you start? Yeah, yeah I guess. Um, so being, being a black sex worker in, in Baltimore, I definitely related to Mame's character the most. And just thinking about like how in 1905, which jobs were afforded to different bodies? You know, like what drives, like because I, I like to steep my, my activism in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of Marx black feminist radical lens. And so like what drove Mame to do the job that she is doing now, which is a sex worker, you know, and what jobs are afforded to black women you know, in, in a time of Jim Crow and right before the Great Migration, right before the cities are about to be flooded and there are gonna be so many, not only black, but immigrant women um, doing the work that she is contending to do and how much is she gonna get paid for that work? Um, and will she be able to live comfortably, not lavishly, but comfortably with the wages that might be afforded, you know, a factory girl or, or someone else doing domestic work? So, um, and I think I was very annoyed with the, the trope of, uh, you know, all I want is like, like, oh, if I wish I could just get, be in love. And when she was, there were so many men before George, you know, I was like, why George? Like, why does it have to be this like trope of, I'm a prostitute, but all I really want is love. Like, it's, God, I was just like, you know, you're a working girl, go, you know, like, but gosh, so I think I was very annoyed with, with that, with that piece, but <laughs> um, yeah, like, ma'am, ma I was very touched to see a representation of a, a black sex worker in theater, because I rarely watch theater, and I think just in that, in that time period, too, I remember Notage very much speaking about uplifting our ancestors, bodies that are rarely shown in, in the mainstream media and such, and to you know, enrich other people's lives with diverse narratives that might not be their own. So I was very pleased to, to know that, from my own experience, that, that um, Mame was involved in this, and she was very much a, a force for, for Esther, like the, the camaraderie that was there is like, this is so loving, you know, even though, you know, Esther would, to a certain extent, look down on her for what she did, that didn't really take up too much of the play, mm -hmm. which I liked. I liked that they could find solace between one another. Yeah, I want to come back to that, because I found the relationship between two of them very telling, but we'll get back to Stefan. You know, for me, I want to touch on what you just said. It, it, it triggered a nerve with me how uh, Lynn Nadeji was able to give the Mamie, or Mame, or I don't know how her name is pronounced, but Mamie, uh, it gave her two different identities. One is a sex worker, and one is a person. And she has an incredibility to, 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 to like play piano and sing. So it gave her like an identity beyond just being a woman just seen as scorned upon or looked down upon. And recently I had the opportunity to meet a young lady who uh, works in the sex industry, but she's an artist. She actually can paint and draw. And I, be, I saw her write something, and so I began to have a dialogue like, hey, you didn't write that normally. What do you, like, do you paint? She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm an artist. I love to paint. And it's like, wow, so you have an identity beyond you do 
after hours. You're really an artist, and just that was an old. You just said that it's like she has an identity beyond. But in our society, we kind of look down upon those in that profession as that they don't have an identity beyond what they do or or do after a certain time or how they're perceived. In, in actuality, we all have a past. We all have some skeletons, and I love the fact that she was able to be portrayed as one who um, had an identity and, and and a voice, literally actual voice, beyond being on her back, so to speak. That was one thing. And the second thing, to answer your question about um, our industry here, 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 I'm a designer and I have a, um, the fabric store I go to is owned by a Jewish gentleman and our common thread, uh, a fabric place on Falls Road is, that's where I shop for fabric. And our common thread, I remember as a kid going there as a teenager, I could never, I thought I could never afford to shop there. Because the price of it, I could never afford to spend 80 bucks a yard for fabric. It's just like, wow, it's just going to drool. And so now, I didn't go there for almost 20 years because I felt like I wasn't, I could never afford it. But I went back, and our thread now is fabric. But it, our conversations go so far beyond. It's like uncle and nephew now. And so now, she had this Jewish um, friend, and, and ours is, is like, almost like uncle and nephew at this point. We talk every single day. But our thread is fabric, but the relationship is, is, is a genuine love. And he said, Stefan, my goal for you is to see you win in business. That's my goal. So to, to you. literally, he says, we see you win in business. So the common thread was fabric, which is what Baltimore was kind of built upon. But the other side to it is that it's a relationship there that, that's bonded us now and it goes so far beyond the fabric. It's a daily talk. So when we move in business, I call him, hey, uncle, you think what this? Hey, Stephan, not do this, don't do that. Or that, that's our dialogue with the thread was fabric. Same with Mr. Marks and Esther. So local answer request was a local thing. It's so rich and deep in Baltimore, um, even down to the names. It, it's such a big Jewish population that was here that uh, immigrated here that was rich in fabric making. The Russian Jews, the German Jews uh, were really, they were master tailors. And they migrated here to Baltimore. And some remnants of that is still here. That's why I was so rich, and that's why I was number one in pants making and suit making. And it's so many factories around here that are dead now, but they were vibrant with energy. And that was a storyline of Baltimore. It fed, it was like the number one employer uh, in the world at one point for making garments, but, and basically men's garments. We were known for making men's tailored garments. So that was a rich history. And I think for me, it was like a kind of like, wow, this is what, this is what I do. So, yeah. Melissa? Thanks for the question. I think that, uh, I spoke to it a little bit already, but I think that the two themes that sort of come up for me and how they relate to Baltimore is precisely what you just see, said, Stefan. We live in a city that is a post-industrial city. So there are a lot of people in Baltimore who are struggling with great economic need because there is an incredible lack of um, job opportunities that are accessible for people without a college degree. How do we how do we deal with that as a city? So that's something that I think, you know, there's a lot of, there are, there are a lot of people with agency in this play, which is great. You know, I think that the image of Esther as an independent seamstress is a really powerful one, given the time period. Thinking that that was a time period where there were a lot of factories, where there were, um, that didn't have the kind of liberty or agency that Esther had. So I think the, the theme that resonates for me the most is one of labor and how labor is currently the landscape of labor and labor issues in Baltimore City and the kind of um, limited choices that people have for how they're going to, the, the desperate choices that some people make in order to be able to provide themselves with um, a home 
and food and basic necessities. And uh, so that speaks the strongest to me, I would say, in the play. I guess just, if I could just piggyback off that, that's bringing it back to Baltimore in, in regards to like being, needing to have economic stability and then tying it back to sex work. Um, you know, Mame chose the position that she chose because as a black woman, she decided that this is the way that I'm going to make the most money to be comfortable in my own needs. Mm -hmm. And speaking back to Baltimore and, and the, 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 the sex industry here, especially in the, um, on, in, in the historic block where sex work is predominantly um, historically been seen, um, you know, black, black trans women choose to um, do sex work and to do street sex work because of the discrimination that they face. Not only being black, but then on top of that being transgender. And then I cannot speak to what other identities might be compounded for them to, you know, decide to do um, sex work. And it, it, it all comes out of this need you know, especially in a capitalist society that I want to be comfortable and I need to buy things. Like, just, mm -hmm. just thinking about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, if, mm -hmm. if, if I don't have enough money to, to buy food for myself, clothing for myself, and then on top of that to pay housing mm -hmm. and to pay rent, and then thinking about also my emotional and mental needs, you know, mm -hmm. not, not everyone is gonna have that, that luxury to even ascend higher mm -hmm. On, onto the, the hierarchy of needs if they don't have the, that baseline of money because of our capitalist society, money and housing, mm -hmm. you know? And just thinking about how, especially in tying it back to Baltimore, how folks have to navigate being a post-industrial um, space when all of those jobs kind of left to, to go to, in a very ne neoliberal fashion, went, you know, to go seek cheaper labor you know, it, it left a vacuum for folks to figure out, well, what am I gonna do now? And, you know, and some of those folks made, you know, the decision to, you know, um, make make ends meet, you know, and I, the same can be, be said for sex work. So I think that was, um, again, powerful to see, especially when I was doing a little bit of research, is like, what jobs, you know, were afforded for black women you know, in, in lower Manhattan, you know, and like, I, there was a slew of things I saw. There was like this factory fire. I was like, oh my gosh, well, they really don't think about laborers then. And if I, as a black woman, like, what do I want to do? Do I want to toil away at a factory that doesn't care about my, my health and, you know, well-being enough to make sure that factory conditions are safe? This is still going on. It's still going on. If we think about the Bangladesh fire, you know, um, to think about my health and safety, but on top of that, to afford me a living wage in which I can thrive and ascend that hierarchy of needs. Um, not everyone has that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what this, another thread here, had to do with the American dream right. that Nada was just talking about. Yes. People trying to, everybody had the, the, the semi-fantasy of Esther, I say semi because could have been real, of mm -hmm. building her own beauty parlor. Right. His, what George wanted to have his team of horses. Right. Mame trying to find her way with the money she's making to find a life. Mm -hmm. That everybody has this dream that gets thwarted. You know? Um, and I think um, that's a big piece of this play. 
And that also speaks to where we are today. Um, interesting to me was that I was in New York yesterday. Uh, I had to go there to meet a client. And so uh, while I was there, I was looking, I'm actually looking for some more help. And I'm meeting other tailors who are there who are saying how just a year ago or however long ago it was, they, could they had five people working. Um, and now they can't afford it because the rents have gone through the roof in New York as they're going in D.C. and happening here in Baltimore as well. Everything's going up and they're squeezing out this labor factor. And now they're like, hey, I don't have work. I'm saying, hey, come to Baltimore. It's work here. <laughs> and it's, it's, this, it's this industrial agent that's, that's happening is able to help to facilitate um, uh, and be an agent of change, and I think, and, 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 and labor because now it's shifting upward to downward because we do have Baltimore's growing to this maker city that folks really want to buy local and keep it local. And so now I'm talking to this tailor, it's like, hey, I had five people working here a year ago. Now I'm by myself because I can't afford to pay them. He has, I had five, had five people working here five days a week and now I don't have them. So now I'm like, hey, come to Baltimore, we can get you some work here. So it's interesting how it's shifting from New York in the play and we're here in Baltimore. It's the same kind of thing to me. I guess I was just going to offer that uh, in terms of scale, though, you know, we were just watching a film in the class that I teach on Wednesday, and it um, has to do with the international garment business, right? Where are clothes made? And this is at a time where, in this play, where all of the garments are made in, in, this, in the United States. And there was a statistic shared in that film that in 1960, um, 85 or 90% of our clothing was still made in the United States. And wow. nowadays, I think it's down in the single digits in terms of percentages. So I think that, again, it's you know the opportunity to watch a play that takes place in 1905, what are the subject matter, is it gives you an opportunity to reflect on what has changed since then and what has not. And for me, one of the things that I reflect on is in 1905 that there was a thriving garment industry in Baltimore. And having done some community-based projects in various parts of Baltimore City as an artist, one of the things I was always struck by is when we did any kind of community mapping, for instance, down in Southwest Baltimore near Black Cherry Puppet Theater, having conversations with older people that lived in that community that said they remember the raincoat factory, they remember the umbrella factory, they remember right. people coming home from their jobs at lunchtime um, and the kind of the numbers of people they would sort of see walking through the streets coming home from work. And yeah, and then thinking about the kind of the industrial base that we no longer have. And I would offer also that while there are some, some would point towards Under Armour being here or some other industry um, kind of being re-enlivened, that when we're looking at a large scale, we're still dealing with a real lack of a solid economic base here in the city that is really um, affecting people in a really severe way on a day-to-day -day basis. If you think about where this play was at that moment in 1905, we can talk about garment workers in the garment industry and, and that black folks for the most part were not in that industry. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Black workers didn't get, get, did not get into that industry until much later. Right. Mm -hmm. um, easing into the 20s, 30s, especially in the 50s and 60s, then the majority of the workers in that industry were, were Puerto Rican and black women um, in, in, on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So it changed, because then it was Jewish, Italian, Irish workers in those factories who were working. Right. People in Hamden were the people in those factories who were working in Baltimore, right? So it was a very different situation. So this is the seamstress, Esther, that's what black women did.
if you worked in garment industry, you were a seamstress. Yeah, you work at home. You work at home, yeah, right, or wherever that was. Yeah, you can right? work at the factory. Yeah. So it's a, it, was a, it was a very different dynamic, right. um, which is why I think the whole kind of, again, thread right. of this, to me, between the Jewish owner um, and the intimacy that they had was wrapped up in that as well, right? right? Um, I, I, one of the things that this is whole this whole piece for me, I don't even know you were up there. Um, <laughs> the, the, what was um, was the intimate relationships coming back to where I started here, in that in this piece and the complexity of those things that happened, right? And even in the love that took place uh, between George and Esther. Other people facilitated that love. Mm -hmm. Their fantasy of not doing one deal with their realities allowed other people to fill that fantasy with words they didn't even write themselves. I think, yeah, that, that very much speaks to, like, I always just saw that as, like, when I was watching it, it's just how women are socialized, even to this day, like, why, you know, the word spinster kind of, you know, is... You know, it's just like, oh my God, I don't want to be a spinster at my age, you know? Everyone's gonna, you know, this the spinster is seen as loveless and the whore is seen as loveless. And, you know, I think very, like women are very much socialized to want to have like romance and love and to, to, to build a family. And, 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 and that's femininity, traditional femininity. And for, for George, oh yes, yes, take care. And, and for 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 George's need to not have to pander to Esther and, and get money from her because this idea of masculinity, you know, uh, even across cultures is that as as a man, you know, I need to be the breadwinner. I shouldn't be pandering to my my wife, uh, who is very much other than me. So, yeah. Anybody else out there before I jump into this? Going up to the mic, so we can get your voice. No, you may, I might let you use mine. Yes. Oh my gosh! Look at that jacket. I'm so that's Thank wonderful. Thank you. Um, it's from a thrift store in Santa Fe, but I've been getting compliments all day. Am I on? Right, right. If you have a question here, first. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the thing I love about theater is that everybody has their own interpretation of what's going on. I don't know if anybody else noticed, but at the end of the play, when Esther is sitting down at the sewing machine, she touches her stomach with a yeah. sweet smile on her face, yes. and she's working on this little tiny quilt. Oh, yeah. Is that the final intimacy of mother and child? Yeah, I saw that too. That was my first reaction was the few times they actually maybe had sex or made love, Esther's pregnant. Yeah, I I was I was a little I guess disheartened. I was like, oh, you know, there's yet another single black woman taking <laughs> care of a child. You know, why why couldn't you know why why couldn't George be you know like there's this I don't know this constant caricature of you know the single black woman with a child. I was just like, George, why couldn't you be? But yeah, I saw that as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Didn't miss yeah, that struck me as well. <laughs> that, that was something that was discussed, and like we discussed it, I think. Brian, we, you mentioned like that allude, and it wasn't confirmed if it was that she really did get pregnant, or which like, and, and like, uh, if you kind of went into the part two to this, or, or what, what you just said as far as it's the same thing now, where it's the, the single black woman 
left by the black man who runs off and it is kind of like or is taken by the carceral system whatever it may be actually i hated that part i hated me personally i hated you hated what i hated um that how do i want to tactfully word this i didn't like in some instances how uh it was spun. I guess it's all into, into interpretation, but I didn't want the wrong person to interpret it the wrong way. If whatever that wrong may be, that's good. it's all it's our perception. But it was like, wow. I'm hoping you, like you said, I wish they would stay together and made this work as a family structure and shown that in light. But it was in alluding to was she pregnant? Did he? You know. So it was kind of interesting space that they kind of leave it to your interpretation. So I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, thank you all, by the way. Um, I was struck by something. This goes back to the earlier conversations about the actual apparel in the show, and in particular to the wedding night scene, because it really struck me with all her nervousness and apprehension. And I mean, I was one of the people in the audience who was laughing. A lot of people were laughing. But you know what? She had no mother. It doesn't appear that Mrs. Dixon was the kind of woman who sort of, you know, got her prepared for her wedding night in any practical way. And really, it was terrifying. And in something that's very hard to acknowledge, even when you're out in the dark. And I also thought it was so, so telling to me that in that scene, she kept her corset on. He didn't ask, she didn't ask him to take it off. She didn't take it off. And the real intimacy for her, at least up to that point, was with the apparel. It was a signifier, but it was also her protection. And she didn't take it off. And we hear afterwards that they apparently got off to a satisfactory start with their married life, which, you know, is good. But I thought that, that all these, um, these clothes as language and as signifiers don't take the place of what your body can signify to you, what another person's body can signify to you when you're both new to this, new to each other. The scope of the shared ignorance there was, was pretty wide. Mm -hmm. And um, clothes were kind of her best friend in that situation, I think. Um, she, you know, and she could see how torn she was. Mm -hmm. She was so freaked out by every sort of ordinary, um, you know, bombastic male expression of this, this husband of hers, but she wasn't ready to go there. I also thought the minute he threw his clothes on the ground, I thought this guy's no good. I, that just came through in the context of this play. That came through so clearly. And, uh, but I got, you know, as the play continued and as the, the different dual friendships were examined in different scenes, I just, it was very enriching. I thought it was really good, but the, the, the wedding scene, if not the crux of the play, was really the crux of what's all this stuff about and what does it not do for you even though it's important to have it yeah i guess to, no, please go ahead. yeah like valeska uh, spoke about michelle foucault earlier and how in our society we're a very hypersexualized society but then we don't talk about sex you know so i think that was very much prominent in that scene where i'm just like oh you know like we were talking about how yeah um Miss Dickinson might have not been that, fulfilled that role for her. And like, this is what happens when 
you know, this is what's going to happen, this is what you can do to make it more pleasurable, like, all of these, like, when I'm talking about sex with my friends, it's just like, you know, like, does he know that it's clitoral stimulation and not <laughs> penetration? You know, sorry to be frank out there, but, like, all, all of these little things that make the, that moment, sorry. <laughs> You've got, that's fine. <laughs> all of these little things that make, you know, um, intercourse and, and sexual intimacy uh, a little bit more, if lack of a better word, tolerable, but also enjoyable. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that we, you know, very few of us speak about um, as 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 brazenly as, as I do. I was also going to just respond to your comments about the wedding night. That um, there are two things that struck me about that scene. One of the things we talk again about in the fiber department at MICA is how clothing is kind of a personal armor, right? It's like our intimate, it is our intimate armor. It's our second skin. It's, um, it's something that protects us, uh, not just from the elements, but also from our uh, feelings of vulnerability. And I think that that's very apparent in that, in that scene. The other moment that's played out there too is, we talked about this earlier in a kind of a pre-panel conversation about how do we understand intimacy? And in that moment, Esther wants intimacy with this new man that she has never really spent any time with by sharing stories. So she says, this is my story. This is when I started sewing, I came from this place, this is my family story. And she says, what's your story? As he's trying to get in the sack with her. And she's like, she's trying to be intimate with him. And that's the conversation we had earlier is, how do we understand intimacy and intimate intimacy in, the, in this play? Um, that that is the way in she, which she is trying to feel more comfortable in being with him, and he's not affording that to her because of what you spoke to, the learned behavior of masculinity. Like, that's not how he's going to show his vulnerability to her. So how does vulnerability also enter into that scene? She's asking him a question. He's vulnerable. And he says, I'm, I, you know, my parents were chattel. They were the children of chattel. That's the end of the tale. I'm here. I'm trying to break that cycle. Let's get in the sack. You know, and so I think that that she, the playwright is so brilliant in finding these moments that communicate so much complex information in a simple exchange like that. Um, and then again, being in the theater, you have the visual component to it, right? So the clothing that's being worn and what's being done with that clothing and so forth. So thanks for that question. So this will be the last question of the evening. I don't think I have a question so much as commentary because listening to you guys and looking at the uh, two characters that have been most uh, spoken about today, Mamie and um, Esther, you know, three words come together, or come to my mind rather, and that would be empowerment, survival, and coping. Because in each instance, like at the end when she went back, when she sat down at her sewing machine, that was one of the most powerful moments for me in the whole play because what she did was she adapted. Just like, you know, she kind of, you know, water seeks its own level. It was kind of like that's where she settled in and it was like, okay, I draw the line. That was it. It hurt her. He tore her heart out when he ripped that, that, uh, like that, quilt. that, that quilt. And somehow she restored herself. I think that Mamie being a trained pianist, she didn't ask for that life, but in order to survive, and to maintain a sense of her own uh, individual capacity to make a way for herself and to survive and have some semblance of happiness here and there. 
that she gravitated toward. Those men, when she ran into them, they were looking at, you know, someone, a sexual being, someone to get physical with. They didn't know she could play the piano, but she thought she just might run into a big band leader or whatever. But her, and then the dream thing, you know, slowly, I don't think it fizzled out completely, but she just started to kind of, you know, give up on it and embrace where she was. But she still seemed like she had a glimmer of where she potentially could go in terms of achieving her dreams. So we're gonna round this out now. So, I mean, just run out with some very quick closing thoughts on how you tie this thread together of labor and love. I will say Stephen this, um, like we just said, as far as the, um, the it, this comment, right, of, uh, I think you said, I think you mentioned about the intimacy, um, how it showed different layers and levels of intimacy um, be, be, between, and different languages of intimacy. One, some was physical, some was a common denominator like fabric, um, the other was kind of uh, an understood intimacy between um, uh, Esther and Ms. Dixon. So it was different l layers and, la and, and, and languages of intimacy and showing how they all can be described and communicated. And secondly, I think with um, showing how, in one instance, George couldn't quite enunciate what he felt in some ways, um, but then Mr. Mars could express himself, and this is how it's like it's, it's a racial barrier where a lot of times in our community we don't communicate well as black men. In other communities, they, they communicate better because it's in the same structure, uh, structure and racial things that are going on between. So it was interesting as a, dy a dynamic play, and I love the fact that it all tied together and it shows so many different layers of, of black and white, and that at the end and beginning of the day, that we've all kind of got to start over again. We all fall down and we all got to get back up. And it was a powerful moment to me, I thought, when she just sat back down, she didn't give up. And how each of the characters, all three black characters, all had dreams. They all had a dream. Esther, uh, Mamie, and George, despite whatever their journey was, they all had these dreams of, I know I'm something more than where I am. I'm something greater than where I am. And I don't want to really rest. And even though George's approach was, I'm going to take from Esther to get it. It was, I got a dream that this can work and I'm not going to quit. I've lied my way to America. So if I got to hustle my way again, I'll do that. And Mamie's was, hey, if I got to lay down for it, my dream was still a big band thing. And Esther's was, I lost it all. I started over again. So, yeah. Valeska? Your question was, how do we tie together the threads of love and labor in this play in a closing thought? So I suppose I would say that um, I think about how choice enters into both of those and how personal agency enters into both of, both of those questions of love and labor. Um, how does that still resonate today for people in our town? Uh, what are the boundaries that exist between people? How do we transgress them? How do we step over them? And how do we make it possible for people to live a self-actualized life in which they are able to take care of their needs, both their, the Maslow's order, yes, both psychology. their physical needs and their psychological and kind of spiritual and emotional needs. Gigi. Yeah, I guess, um, like tying it back to intimacy, I think it was, I very much am intimate with my guitar. I play my guitar and journaling. So seeing Esther, going back to what you were speaking about at the end, grounding herself and what is her work, but also a time to kind of, it's self-care, giving her a space to 
not only work, but to feel the fabrics in her hands and to, to be cognizant of what she's doing and to love herself in that moment. And then with Mame and her playing the piano, that is a very intimate moment for me. I was thinking about the intimacy between objects and with, even with Miss Dickinson, you know, um, the food that she makes, you know, for the, the boarders in her home. So, yeah, um, I don't know. I didn't really have closing thoughts. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. And I, I'll let you all know as we do close out here that uh, this will be up sometime by Wednesday, I guess, at steinershow.org, also on iTunes. People can download it, listen to it at their leisure. Um, it's been great to have this. Gigi Goba, Valeska Papula, Stefan Wise, great to have you here. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, can we please thank our esteemed moderator, Mark Steiner, for holding the space tonight. Just want to also let you know, we have two weeks more of this production, uh, and, and please spread the word. There's a lot here to talk about and experience. We think it's a lovely production. I hope you did too. Uh, please tell folks about it. And the last thing I do want to say uh, is we have these community uh, events that are coming up. And like I said, a walking tour, threading the history of place here in their neighborhood next Sunday at 11 a.m., Y'all come back and walk the neighborhood with us, please, or spread the word. And the other one I need to let you know about, as I said at the beginning, November 19th, a community celebration of a kind, our Boudoir Couture Showcase, curated none other than by Caprice Jackson Garrett, who spoke up right here at the very end. And uh, spread the word about all the programming. It's in the programming. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.